Theodore Roosevelt was the 26th president of the United States, 1901 to 1908, nine maybe. During his presidential term, his big game hunting trips were famous. I especially appreciate the story of his return home from a particular expedition in Africa in 1905. This was, of course, prior to the development of commercial aviation, so the president came into the harbor in New York City aboard a steamship. As the ocean liner docked, the president was met with great fanfare. Bands played. Crowds cheered. And people excitedly hoped to get a glimpse of Teddy Roosevelt. Reporters were even there, writing down every word that he said. Two other passengers were on that ship, and they, unlike the president, remained completely unnoticed. Mr. and Mrs. Henry Morrison. After 40 years... Forty years as missionaries in Africa, they were returning to America for their well-earned retirement. But no one met the faithful missionary and his wife. No one cheered. None sought a record of what he would say. As you can imagine, all of the passengers were kept on board the ship until the president was off and the crowds had left disembarking after that, Henry Morrison felt quite depressed because no one was left to see him off. And he remarked bitterly to his wife that he should get some recognition for coming home after 40 years in the Lord's service. To which his wise wife said, but Henry, we're not home yet. We're not home yet, are we? We're still wandering. We're somewhere between the garden and glory. At times, though, we feel we can reach out and touch heaven here on earth. So wondrous are life's blessings. We hear the call to taste and see that the Lord is good. And are there not times when you feel like you could almost just reach out and put it to your lips? But then a moment passes And we are dismayed. The transition from tasting and seeing to dry and thirsty requires but an instant. And we move from almost grasping heaven to wondering if it was a mirage. Sin turns the sweet bitter while it's still on our lips and we are wandering again in the desert. We're disappointed by our failed expectations. We're never quite satisfied here, are we? Psalm 63 is written for us. Chrysostom, whose name means golden-mouthed because he was such a famous preacher in the year 400 A.D., said in one of his sermons on Psalm 63, 
that it had been decreed and ordained by the primitive fathers. So he's talking about the primitive fathers in 400. So he's talking about 100 A.D., shortly after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. He said it was decreed and ordained by the primitive fathers that no day should pass without the singing of this psalm. So valuable was it considered by God's people. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary, has a long explanation of how many different ways and how valuable this psalm should be to us. And in the conclusion of it, he writes, I know of no time and of no season in which this psalm would sound unsuitably from a believing tongue. But then he adds, it especially, however, belongs to any who by their circumstances or by their state of heart feel themselves to dwell in the desert land. That stage of spiritual history, which may be well described as a wilderness experience, wherein we have little rest, much temptation, and consequent proving of heart and discovery of inward weakness. See, David, like many saints, finds that he must stir up his faith while he is in a spiritual desert. That's the reason for the inspired title which begins the psalm. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. King David is far from home. He's physically far from home in his in his case. But his literal wilderness applies to all who know times of spiritual dryness. Matthew Henry commenting on Psalm 63 and our need for its encouragement while we are in the wilderness writes, This world is a weary land. It is so to the worldly that have their portion in it. It will yield them no true satisfaction. It is also to the godly that have their passage through it. It can promise them little. Have you not found that to be true? That the world has little to offer. So how do we survive in a dry and weary land? Psalm 63 tells us. The first thing that I would ask you to notice from this is that when we are in the wilderness, we must recognize God's claim on us. When we're in a wilderness, we must recognize God's claim on us. I see that in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Early or earnestly will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. You need to remember that it is natural to believe when troubles abound that our problem is the outward circumstances. But you need to also know that God's people have found with David here that the absence of comforts can be met with confidence 
and calmness when we walk with God. And likewise, even the most lavish of multiplication of ease poured out on you will not help when God withdraws his presence from your soul. And so the first key to life in the wilderness, when you are in those times of spiritual dryness, is to recognize God's claim on you. It is God for whom your soul longs. Your soul was longing for God when you were not in the spiritual desert. You may not have recognized it. But now that you are in a season where whether it be circumstances or simply God has withdrawn a sense of His presence from you, it is He for whom your souls long. And it is heaven which your heart wants as its home. Augustine was exactly right when he began his confessions saying to God, you made us for yourself and my soul will remain restless. Augustine had experienced, Augustine had tried every pleasure life had to offer. He was a profligate. And no matter what he tried to pour into his soul, he could never find satisfaction. He could never find rest. And when God finally converted him, he said, Oh, you made us for yourself. My soul is restless until it rests in you. And so David here in Psalm 63 begins, though he's in a wilderness, by recognizing that what his soul really wants is God. He recognizes God's claim on his life. But not everyone can. You need to know that. Not everyone can. The unconverted person cannot recognize God's claim on his soul. Notice that David begins by praying to the God, the God who made heaven and earth, and he says, I swear to you my allegiance. You will be my God. You and no other. You are the one who has awakened my soul so that I know it is you and you alone to whom I belong and for whom I long. Now, such a profession cannot be made. At least it cannot be made truthfully and honestly by those who have not been born again. Yes, it's true that every soul thirsts for God. Just as surely as, well, just as surely as every physical body hungers for food. And it's also true that every person, no matter what their spiritual state, seeks to satisfy that thirst that's within them. But, like the survivor of a shipwreck surrounded by an ocean of water, the drinking of salt water can never quench the thirst. And it's similar to those who have not, to those of you who have not been awakened to the all-surpassing pleasure of delighting in God's glory and power. You will sinfully seek satisfaction elsewhere. You cannot help it. The soul thirsts, yes, but rather than earnestly seek God, those who do not know Him continue to pour on the salt of worldly pleasure. 
It may be through seeking fame, ease, comfort, power, prestige, influence, acceptance with your friends, acceptance to the best college, a promotion at work, a certain kind of wife or husband. These and a thousand other idols can be pushed toward the soul But the soul was made to know God and God alone. And those will never fit the God-shaped void that is within our hearts. When Jesus was with us, a rich man came to him and said, What do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus reminded him that everything you do drives you further away from God. What you must do is lay down all you have And all you are at the feet of Jesus Christ. And then the text tells us with these words he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. (laughs) You see, in that interaction, God makes it absolutely clear that I have a claim on your life and on your soul. But this man could not recognize that what he truly desired was to know God. His commitment was to his works and his attainments. And so as Jesus said to that man, I say to you here today, God made you for himself. And you cannot rest until you find your rest in him. If you have not found God as the great desire of your soul, will you not this day pray with David, Oh God, I have fed my soul everything imaginable, but cannot find satisfaction. It is you, according to this word, for whom my soul thirsts. Will you not free me from sin to seek my satisfaction in you? Will you not allow me to come to the living water that alone can satisfy my soul's thirst? See, until you are converted to a disciple of Jesus Christ, you cannot recognize the fact that God is the one that has a claim on your soul. But then second, notice this. The sinner does not recognize God's claim on his soul. See, God has a claim on all people because he is the creator. But he has a special claim on his people because he has made a covenant. And yet, even those of you today who know God still retain your sin nature. And so, because of that sin nature, we refuse to recognize that it is God whom we desire. When our bodies are hungry, of course, we feed them. When we are sick, we nurse our bodies back to health. When an ankle is sprained, you favor it. You cut your hair and floss your teeth and trim your nails. Very good. Are we not at caring for our bodies? But unfortunately, we prefer cheap substitutes for our souls. Instead of feeding our spirits on Scripture and prayer, we eat brownies or watch TV. Instead of meditating on Christ through a soul-stirring book or conversation, we play computer games and surf the web. None of those is necessarily evil. Yet each can be used to avoid God's claim on your soul. I really appreciate Pastor Chris Lundgaard's book where he explains this struggle in really down-to-earth practical terms. 
picturesque illustrations. He writes, You can feel the hostility of the flesh whenever you approach God. It makes real love for Him into work. Digging around the Bible to find a juicy new insight to impress your small group is like sailing the Caribbean. But pouring over the Scriptures to find the lover of your soul is like skiing up Mount Everest. Conjuring up a happy mood with some music you don't even know the words to is like solving 2 plus 2 with a calculator. But savoring the glory of Christ and His tender love until your heart is softened toward Him is like using mental math to calculate pi to the thousandth place. And giving a birthday present to your best friend is like forcing down some extra double fudge brownies. But giving up your extra bedroom to a homeless person in the name of Jesus is like eating the Rockies for breakfast. Why is it easier to do just about anything other than earnestly seek after the one for whom our soul longs? Well, the Bible says it's because we have a sin nature. A sin nature means that the very things I want, I refuse to give my soul. (laughs) That's precisely why C.S. Lewis, in the illustration I quoted to you last week, said, if we consider the rewards which are offered in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Do we not often think that our problem is that our desires for very physical things are so strong that they overwhelm us and we cannot resist sin But Lewis writes, the problem is our desires are not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted. We fool around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Those of you today who are not yet Christians, you need to know that you cannot recognize God's claim on your life. You do not thirst because you do not yet know Him. And you need to be converted. Ask Him to change your heart. But even those of us who are believers find that we often do not recognize His claim. That brings us to the third point under this idea of where to start with when we are finding ourselves in the wilderness Everyone should recognize God's claim on his soul. Everyone should recognize God's claim on his soul. Now, those of you who have spent any time reading the Psalms, you probably know that you love them because they are expressive of your faith. Thomas Brooks rightly observes that David here does not say, my soul thirsts for water, but my soul thirsts for thee. Nor does my soul thirst for the blood of my enemies, but my soul thirsts for thee. He does not say, my blood thirsts for deliverance out of this dry and thirsty land where no water is, or that his soul thirsts for a crown and a kingdom, but my soul thirsts for thee. My flesh longs for thee. See, David longs for God. God has opened his mind and heart to this truth, And so he realizes it's God that he really wants. 
and he can bless God that God has driven him out into the wilderness, released him from all of those distractions of the palace, another beautiful feast, another of the most luscious of meats and fruits and dainties, another harem of women throwing themselves before the king. God has freed him from those temptations, driven him into the wilderness so he can find out without distraction, it's really God that I'm longing for. And God graciously records this song for us so that we might have the perfect words to express what we feel when we have experiences and feelings and desires like David does and we need words to to say how much we love God and how we long for Him, God has given us Psalm 63. It is expressive of our faith. But what do you do when you're in the wilderness? What do you do when the feelings are not there? Dr. John Collins, who's professor of Old Testament at Covenant Seminary, writes on Psalm 63 this, I'm not sure I can sing something like my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you on Sunday just because the pastor who picked the song on Wednesday thought I should. After all, I only rarely feel even a little this way. I don't want to lie to God. He'd know it anyhow. And I don't want to lie to my fellow believers by singing this, so I might as well keep silent. What do you do when the feeling's not there? Psalm 63 is expressive of our faith when we have those feelings. It's given by God for that purpose. It's a wonderful song to sing. What happens when we don't feel like we long for God? Look at Collins again. The trouble with this approach, is that it misses the point. The Psalms are not primarily expressive. That is, they are not primarily given to you to express how you feel now. They are instead formative. Incredibly important difference. They are formative. They show me how I ought to feel. And if I honestly offer my worship to God, He will enable me actually to begin to feel such things. That is to say, we worship God properly when we sing the Psalms by faith and not by sight. So what do we do when we find ourselves in this spiritual wilderness? We memorize Psalm 63. We pray it by faith. We sing it because we know that Christ experienced this. We know that though we do not often feel like hungering and thirsting for God, we know that Jesus did. And we know that as followers of Christ, the Bible promises that the Holy Spirit will unite us to Him. And we can sing this song because He sang it. Perfectly and in every way. His soul thirsted for God. His flesh longed for God. He early and earnestly sought God every day in every way. This is ours by faith. Not because you feel it, but because Jesus has done it. 
It's formative of your faith. So what the first thing we must do when we are in the wilderness is to recognize that it's God who has a claim on our souls. Then second, when we're in the wilderness, we must remember God's acts of redemption. I see that in verse 2. David says, So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Central, central to the worship of God is retelling the story of redemption. In fact, Israel's whole calendar was built around Passover, which is, of course, the redemption from Egypt. And their sanctuary services focused on the sacrifices which were given to redeem sinful men and to point to the coming of the real sacrifice, the Lamb who would come. And so David in Psalm 63 verse 2 says, So I have looked. It's not as easy to see in English, but the tense of the verb is past tense. Now David is out in the wilderness. His own son is trying to take the throne from him and driven him out of Jerusalem. So he's out wandering around without a kingdom, without a people, without a home, without a palace, without anything. So he's definitely not looking at the sanctuary. What is he doing? He's remembering. He says, I remember that I looked, past tense, for you in the sanctuary. I remember what worship was like. I remember that worship is all about how your power and glory is revealed in your redemption. It's all about what God has done for His people. Well, worship after the cross is exactly the same in this way than it was before the cross. If you look at our worship service, we have the same structure every week, although we have lots of variety built around it. But the worship begins by singing and talking and praying about how great God is, which then leads us to say, woe is me. A call to humility. I'm not great. And then a call to renew the covenant and look to Jesus and sing songs of grace and, and trust in His promise because Jesus is the answer. answer. The whole worship service is even called often covenant renewal service because we're renewing the covenant God made with us. We are remembering what He did. Central to the worship service is, of course, the Lord's Supper. And though we don't have one of those big $700 tables or $7,000 tables, I don't know how much they cost, but many churches have those tables and carved into the front are Jesus' words. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I come back. What is the proclaiming of Christ's death except the retelling and the remembering of the story of redemption? Everything about worship, including and especially the Lord's Supper, is about proclaiming all that God has done in redemption. So, what David tells us that he did is he remembered the covenant God had made. He remembered God's power and glory, which are two words intimately connected with the redemption from Egypt. His power and glory was manifest in that he crushed Egypt and pulled the people out of bondage to slavery. So, that's what we do 
when we're in the wilderness. Now let me give you five specific things that this verse asks of us when we are in the wilderness. And probably uh, each of these could be thought more deeply about and meditated on, but I'm going to give you the list that you might work on it on your own. First, I believe this verse asks you to believe that your happiness is to see more of God's power and glory. That's what your soul wants. And it will not be happy until you say with David, I look for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Know that that's what brings you joy. Then second, this verse asks you to remember God's saving acts in your life. When you're in the wilderness, do what David did. Remember the times in the sanctuary. Remember the Lord's Supper. When you feel far from God, remember that though you are far from God, He's already come near to you. Remember what He has done. Then third, believe. Believe that we can know Christ through prayer and praise. It is a precious promise when we are lost and wandering in a wilderness to know that Christ has come down and He says, when you gather with your brothers and sisters in My name, I'll come. I will be there. Yes, there may be times when you do not feel it. But believe Jesus. Believe what He says. Then fourth, devote yourself to preparation for, to attendance on, and to participation in public worship. David, of course, being in the wilderness, cannot be in the sanctuary, but all of his thoughts are preparing him to be back in public worship. He knows that is the special place where God comes and meets with His people. So believe that and begin to devote yourself to preparing for it. When you're in the wilderness is the last time you should skip out on public worship. If you want to skip worship, skip it when you're feeling real good about your relationship with God. But when you're down, be here and let Him minister to your soul through His Spirit. And then fifth, proclaim these truths directly to God for the sake of your own souls. I was astonished to count the pronouns in these first eight verses. Eighteen times in eight verses. So that's more than twice a verse. The second person pronoun is used. Either you or your or yours. So what that means is that David is not giving a lecture about a God who's over there. This is a song where he says, I'm talking to you. Eighteen different times he uses the pronoun you. He's speaking directly to God. But even more interesting to me is that 19 times he uses the first person pronoun, I. David is not saying, here's what Ben ought to do. David is saying, this is my faith. This is my personal relationship with you, God. You and I have to do business. I must come to believe the gospel. Do not let your circumstances preach to you a message to discourage your soul. Preach to yourself the Word of God. Here are six quickly examples of some of the effects that these acts of faith will have on you even while you feel you are in a wilderness. First, you will become less enchanted by the world and less controlled by your circumstances. You will become less enchanted by the world 
and less controlled by your circumstances. Second, you will be renewed in your Christian walk. Third, your lusts will be crucified and your holiness increased. Fourth, you will become more humble before God and more gracious toward others. Fifth, you will be better equipped for and delight more in fighting Satan in the spirit rather than in the flesh. And sixth, you will become more like Christ. There can be others, I'm sure, but those I see right off the bat as effects of recognizing God's claim on my soul and remembering His great redemption. As we conclude this second point, one final quotation from Charles Spurgeon. Our misery is that we thirst so little for these sublime things and so much for the mocking trifles of time and sense. We are in, a, in very truth always in a weary land, for this is not our rest. And it is marvelous that believers do not more continuously thirst after their portion far beyond the river where they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, but shall see the face of their God and his name shall be in their foreheads. David did not thirst for water or any earthly thing, but only for spiritual manifestations. The sight of God was enough for him, but nothing short of that would content him. O my soul, imitate the psalmist, and let all thy desires ascend towards the highest good, longing here to see God and having no higher joy even for eternity. Remember, sisters, remember, brothers, remember God's acts of redemption as you look for Him in the breaking of the bread and in the praise of His people. Then third and finally, when you're in the wilderness, we must respond to God's loving kindness. We must respond to God's loving kindness. Verses 3 and 4. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. When the Cornhuskers are again national champions, will you not tell me of it? Let's be honest. Will you tell me of anything else? If you are blessed with a wife, will you not tell of her beauty and her benefit? When you have children, do you not advertise on the rear of your car their excellence? And when you visit the Grand Canyon, will you not describe to others its grandeur? Do you not have a better reason to bless your God? Has He not provided greater provisions and better possessions to you, His children, than all the wealth that the world can offer? Is it not true that it is better to be a servant in His kingdom than to be a king over many nations? Is, is it not true that communion with Him really is more important to us than life itself?
And so if your lips are not praising God, if your speech is not characterized by thankfulness to God, if we are not women and men of prayer who lift up our hands in the name of Jesus Christ because we want to commune with God, how then can we claim to know Him? You need to know when you are in the desert, when you do not feel it, it is not, get this, it is not hypocritical to respond to God's loving kindness even though you do not feel like it. Hypocrisy is when you praise and pray and proclaim God's greatness, but you do not believe it. But David believes it, though he cannot feel it. He believes it, and he remembers when he experienced it. The prayers and praise of verses 3 and 4 come out when David is in the wilderness because he's Praying by faith, not by sight. He doesn't have to feel it to pray it because it's true. And by faith he responds to the loving kindness. I beg you, when you are in the wilderness, do not even entertain the question of whether you feel like it. No offense intended, but who cares whether you feel like it? The question is whether it's true. Whether God's loving kindness is better than life. And if it is, if you believe that God hears your prayers, if you know that He delights in praise, if you have read the Scripture and see that He will meet with you whenever you offer yourself to Him in the name of Jesus Christ, then will you not respond as these psalms say, My lips will praise you. I will bless you. I will lift up my hands in your name. C.S. Lewis in one of his reflections on the Psalms, compares our worship services to the tuning of an orchestra. Some of you may have been there. Before an orchestra performs, in those few minutes before the the, uh, event begins, each person on his instrument is tuning it. And it's it's a mess. (laughs) Nobody's playing the same thing. They're all trying to tune their instruments. And he compares our worship service to that saying, The tuning of an orchestra can be itself delightful, but only to those who can, in some measure, however little, anticipate the symphony that is to come. The Jewish sacrifices and even our own most sacred rites, as they actually occur in human experience, are like the tuning promise, not the performance. Hence... Like the tuning, they, in other words, our worship, our worship may have in it much duty and little delight or even none. But the duty exists for the delight. And when we carry out our religious duties, we are like people digging channels in a waterless land in order that when at last the waters come, it may find them ready. I mean, for the most part, there are happy moments even now when a trickle creeps along the dry beds and happy souls to whom this happens often. 
May God give us the courage and faith to dig channels in a dry and weary land for His grace to pour through when the waters come. Father, we bless You that You have not left us only with great psalms that express those precious times when our souls are happy and full of a sense of Your Spirit. But You have left us the perfect words to form our faith, to form our worship, to teach us how we ought to pray, to teach us how Jesus felt and praised You while He was here, and to teach us the joy that will be ours one day when we and our souls will be satisfied in Your presence with You as with richness and fat. We look forward to that day, Lord. We confess that we get discouraged easily, that it is not here yet for us. But we are believers, not feelers. And we believe that it is ours and will be ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we come to you in His name. Amen.